Hello and welcome to Men, Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Erica Commissar, the psychoanalyst, parenting coach and author of two books, Being There, which is about the early years of a child's life and Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, which is about adolescence and the teenage years. We started off by talking about the early years, the links between uh, very long hours in daycare and later experience of mental illness, why uh, it all went wrong at the Industrial Revolution uh, and why modern life tends to prize mothers apart from their children to the detriment of both, what practical steps families can take in order to um, alleviate those harms and also the role of uh, fathers and of other uh, members of the family in raising children and on the differences between instinctive maternal and uh, paternal behaviour and why those need to be understood and cultivated. In the extended part of the episode, we also spoke about adolescence, how we can build uh, resilience in adolescent children, the role of schools, uh, homeschooling, alternative schooling, um, which is best for for different types of children. Uh, That extended version of the episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com where you can also find all of our other extended episodes, the bonus episodes that I do fortnightly with my husband and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we can't really understand ourselves or understand the world around us without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to put you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously, and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees. Just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. Um, Eric, you probably won't remember, but the first time that we met very briefly was when I came, you did a book launch of your most recent book at uh, the House of Parliament in London, and I brought my baby. Yes, I do remember. <laughs> I, do. I was the one with the baby. And I thought I wouldn't normally, well, I felt a bit embarrassed about him being quite disruptive, but I thought if this is, if there's any book launch I can bring a baby to, you bet. it's this book launch. Yeah. <laughs> So that was your that was your second book, which is uh, second book. Is that right? Yeah. On um, adolescence, your first book was on um, infants. Yes. And your argument, am I right, is that there are really two very important developmental windows that we need to be thinking about as parents, and also thinking about in terms of policy, because at the moment, children in both of those windows are not getting the attention that they need. Yes, that's that's correct. So these two developmental windows are critical because they're they're the periods of development when children's brains are the most susceptible to the environment, and um, they're also most susceptible to change. So, um, you know, the first period of development, zero to three, is a period of neurogenesis, which is cell growth, and by three years old, eighty-five percent of a child's 
social emotional or right brain is developed and our right brain is responsible for so many important things right it's responsible for our ability throughout life to be able to regulate our emotions so what we're seeing today is this sort of uptick in children and adolescents and adults who can't regulate their emotions that's what depression and anxiety is about it's the inability to regulate emotion so nobody really wants to ask where does that come from but it comes from zero to three because again by that period by the end of that period 85 percent of the brain is developed um, and so then there's this flourishing of, of cell growth and then um, at, at 9 to 25 or adolescence, then the brain is pruned, like almost like a garden that's overgrown, in, in, you know, and, and you prune back the bushes. And that pruning period is another susceptible period where the brain is, again, very, very sensitive to the environment. And when I say the environment, the environment is, is, is you, is parents, is, is, are the people that are their caretakers. Um, because as parents and primary attachment figures, you have the ability to help them to learn to regulate their emotions and also cope with stress. So the two really important things that happen in those periods of time are that we learn to regulate our emotions and we learn to cope with adversity or stress. That's what the brain is doing at that point. Should we start by talking about the, the, the zero to three age range? Because there is, um, I don't know if you've um, followed this much in the UK, but the, um, the, the, the place that we're at in terms of the childcare debate right now, as in sort of mainstream opinion in Westminster, is that um, it doesn't really matter essentially who looks after a child between ages zero to three. And that the priority ought to be um, maximizing the ability of mothers in particular to get back into the workforce, maximizing tax revenue, making um, childcare in the form of daycare specifically more um, available and cheaper to parents. And there is a, 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 a sadly small contingent, um, all of whom have read your work <laughs> and are enormous fans of you, who are kind of waving the flag for saying, no, hang on, what about, what about all the research that we have on child development in this age range? Um, could you explain why, why that's poor policy? Why trying to funnel more very young children into full-time daycare is, is poor, is, is poor policy, not just in the short term, but also long term? Well, economists like to talk about human capital. You know, that's, that's the thing for them. They like to think in numbers and economic well-being. They don't really think about human well-being, although they do talk about human capital, right? So we think about who are those people that we're putting out into the workforce, um, either now or in the future, and are they stable, and are they mentally well, and are they prone to breaking down, and are we creating the foundation of a, of a healthy society when we put out children who are mentally unstable and will break down at some point? So it's very short-sighted because it's really focusing on economic development in the short term, but not really thinking about human capital in the long term, right? And so, and that's what we do in the United States too. So, you know, the idea that that um, this push to get women out into the workforce as quickly as possible for the economic well-being of the country. So, of course, there is a number. And I think different studies show a different number in our country, but there's a number at which someone really needs to survive and to flourish and be happy, uh, you know, happy in terms of that, 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 
that monetary number. Um, if you have an impoverished mother, you can't have a healthy child, which is why you know government has to step up and say, you know, we will provide for those mothers. Um, we don't in our country, and that's why I go to the UK because your sense of sensitivities and sensibilities are closer to my own. I try to make a difference in my own country, but I, I seem to have more of an influence in your country. Um, but it's your you are. Um, you are following suit with our country now. And that's really a shame because that is why our mental illness numbers in children and adolescents and adults are higher than yours because you've always done it a little differently. Uh, now you're starting to do it like us. That means your numbers are going to go up like ours. So I think in the UK, the numbers are one in seven children will end up with a mental disorder. In America, it's one in five. So that should tell you, you shouldn't follow suit with us. Could you explain the, um, the, the, the biochemical link here between what happens in that zero to three age range and then the later risk of developing um, various mental illnesses? Well, there's lots of research to show that children who form secure attachment in the first three years um, really in the first year, um, 20 years later, still have that secure attachment and are more likely to be mentally healthy. Now, what does that mean to be mentally healthy, right? It means that you can regulate your emotions. It means you can deal with adversity. It means you can read social cues. It means you can get along in the world socially. Um, and so all really important functions, also things like executive functioning, judgment, perception. These are all working memory, the ability to learn. So we know that we need our right brain for our left brain to function. So think of it like the socks before the shoes. You put your socks on before your shoes. Um, your, your socks is your right brain development before your cognitive development, which is your shoes, right? So we, we know that it's really important to have secure attachment for later on, right, as well as in the present. What we also know from the research is that children who are insecurely attached, who have been precociously, prematurely separated from their mothers, either put in daycare or their mothers are, I could say their mothers are also physically there, but not emotionally present. Maybe they're depressed, maybe they're distracted, maybe they're angry and resentful, maybe they're absent for other reasons, you know, mentally absent. You have to be there physically and emotionally is, is the truth. There is no such thing as quality time. There's no such thing as being there emotionally when you're not there physically. You know, I always say to parents, look, you, you, you can be there. Um, uh, you can be there physically um, and not be there emotionally, but you can't be there emotionally if you're not there physically. It's just a fact, you know, but insecure attachment has been correlated with mental illness later on in these attachment studies. So a child who's insecurely attached at 12 months is going to be insecurely attached. 80% of them are like insecurely attached 20 years later. And so these are really longitudinal research studies we have in many of them to show that insecurely attached children are insecurely attached 20 years later. And it's correlated to things like depression, anxiety, ADHD and borderline personality disorder. So, and different attachment disorders. So what, what is an attachment disorder? Essentially an attachment disorder is a coping mechanism. It's a strategy 
that a child chooses unconsciously. They don't choose it consciously, but they unconsciously choose uh, to, to cope with the loss of their mother, what we call anaclytic depression. So when your mother isn't there and you're so vulnerable, then you uh, dig deep inside your psyche to find some way to cope. The children who do best are the children with the strategy. So avoidant attachment disorder and ambivalent attachment disorder. Avoidant meaning if a you know, mother isn't present and drops her baby at daycare. When she goes to pick that baby up, the baby goes, hmm, I don't know you. I don't want to know you. You weren't there for me. And so I'm not going to, you know, tune into you. I'm going to have to take care of myself. And that kind of strategy leads to depression leads to disconnection, leads to the inability to form relationships later on. Erica, have you seen these TikTok videos? You just reminded me with this, this, uh, this picking up the child from daycare thing. There's this, there's this minor trend of TikTok videos where parents joke about going to pick their child up from, uh, from nursery, from daycare. And the daycare workers will be like, oh, she was a dream all day. You know, she slept really well. She played really well. She was really well behaved. And then as soon as they get in the car, the child has a meltdown, won't behave for the for the for the parent, is acting up, is upset, is 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 not in, like emotionally engaged with them, and it's kind of played for laughs in these TikTok videos because I think the joke is like, oh, you know, what bad luck for me that it's they're so easy at nursery and they're so difficult at home. But then I always think, is it not possible that this is exactly what you would expect from a child who is struggling with attachment that they would be that they would let their emotions out as soon as they get home or get in the car. I always say to parents that children who are securely attached are better behaved children. So, you know, the, the, the irony is that if you, if you're not there, um, your children are going to be more difficult and more challenging for you. So if we're talking mm. about from the perspective of the parent, it's going to be harder for you uh, to raise children who are more difficult because you haven't been around. When you're around, your children are less difficult. And then parents say to me, well, I'm around, but my son still has some difficulties or my daughter still. I say, well, if, if you weren't around, you can't even imagine how difficult they'd be. <laughs> so, um, you know, everything is intensity and degree. Maybe the fact that you're around means that it's mitigated some of that difficulty for that child. You may have a very sensitive child who's very sensitive to their environment, to stress. And so, that child, by being there, there's research to show that when you provide a, a sensitive child with sensitive empathic nurturing, it neutralizes the expression of that sensitivity and the mental illness that is correlated to that sensitivity. So, you know, uh, yes, a child that goes to daycare is going to be much more difficult. They're going to have behavioral problems. They're going to um, have sleep issues. They're going to have regression issues. They're going to show signs of aggression later on. They're going to um, you know, the, the studies show that uh, children in daycare show serious signs of aggression and behavioral problems when they get to school age. And does that tend to persist into adulthood as well? Are there, oh, is there a, a cluster of symptoms that you would, uh, symptoms, characteristics that you would expect to see in an adult who, who had been nudged in a negative direction, I suppose, by um, early experience of daycare? I mean, again, the, the, the depression and anxiety, but also things like ADHD. So mm -hmm. ADHD is a hypervigilant response to stress. It's your brain on, in, in a vigilant state of a threat state, right? So, and that causes distractibility because distractibility is a sign of, um, of the amygdala, the stress-regulating part of the brain on high alert. 
And so, yeah, ADHD, aggression, um, you know, children in daycare have higher levels of salivary cortisol. So they test the children's, um, you know, salivary levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, and they find them to be very high. So that persistently in the brain causes things like distractibility, aggression, fight or flight. So think of fight or flight. So fight, you know, what do we do when we're threatened? We become aggressive. We want to fight the predator or we run. We flee from the predator, which is what distractibility is about. So, I mean, these things are not really rocket science. They're not really hard to figure out if you know what to look for. I think it's why I started writing books for parents, for lay people, because I don't need to write another book for people in my field because we all know what it looks like. But for some reason, the public doesn't. I, I think some of it is an instinctual loss. It's a loss of interest in what's really happening to children underneath and just treating them on a behavioral discipline level and not really looking for things that intuitively we should know. Mm-hmm. One response that um, you get sometimes from people when you raise this or when, when I raise this as, um, as an issue is they'll say, well, look, it wasn't as though things were always peachy in the past. You know, we can have some kind of idealized image of the 1950s or whatever, but you had, I don't know, the British upper classes for many centuries sending their children to boarding schools or to nannies and being very emotionally distant. Uh, You had, um, I don't know, mothers having to go and work in factories and, you know, it's it's not as if things have always been perfect right up until um, a couple of decades ago. But then I suppose what we should be thinking, I mean, my response, and I wonder if you'd agree, is that we should probably be thinking in a much broader sweep of history and thinking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of human development, not hundreds. And this this modern phenomenon of separating infants from their mothers for very long periods of the day Mm. is very novel in terms of the whole sweep of human history, because even even if it's not mothers in soul check, charge of their children as in the 1950s nuclear family arrangement even if it's shared within the kin group mum is there she is physically proximate to the child all the time and it seems as if that is a very crucial thing that we are missing when we have the full-time daycare model so the industrial you'd have to go back to the industrial revolution to understand when it really went all wrong you know Mm. we could say it's feminism too but even before that it was the industrial revolution because people started going to factories they started leaving behind their children and also the necessity to have two incomes you know you'd say the 1950s was not a perfect time but people could live on one income so what, what's re- what people are really struggling with, I went to a conference last night, um, like sort of the new conservatism co- conference, and they were talking about how the problem is that families can't live on one income anymore. So it's yeah, left this need for, right, for people to have to put their children into daycare. That's not the whole picture, because the whole picture is that it's a combination of that, plus the fact that women feel that staying home with children is not a valuable kind of work. And so, you know, even if they possibly could get by on one income, they're choosing not to. Um, Then you add things like materialism. And, you know, so we, we can't just survive in those first three years of our child's life. We have to have lots of stuff. You know, we have to have bigger houses, bigger. So it's it's not a it's a puzzle. You know, the way I think about it is it's not simple. Nothing. It's not like there was the good old days, but hopefully we want to progress and not regress. 
And so this uptick in mental illness is a kind of deterioration, is a kind of, uh, deterioration isn't the right word I'm looking for. It's, it's a kind of illness in society. And you could say there's many ills in society. Um, one being that economically we've made it hard for women to even have the choice to stay home. But, but it, it's a kind of illness when our children are not doing well. You know, it's the first sign that a society is failing uh, is when your children start to fail and when your children don't want to have children. That, that means something is really uh, wrong with society. Mm-hmm. You get into this painful um, vicious cycle, don't you? Because we've, I mean, it's really from... It's really from the 90s, at least in the UK and America, where you see this really big uptick in um, middle class women in particular working when they have young children. Um, It's not actually from the 60s and 70s that you see this enormous um, uh, rise. And that means that those children born in the 90s are now in adulthood and some of them having their own children. But that the the psychological effects that we are seeing are only really coming out now. We don't have generations and generations to to, to, to look at and learn from. And no. there's a real defensiveness around mm. this for understandable reasons because no parent, and I think particularly no mother, wants to think that she has done it wrong by her children. And so doubling down on whatever decision you happen to have made is a very normal and natural decision, but it does also make it very difficult to to draw attention to, for instance, the links between increased use of daycare from the 90s onwards and um, high rates of mental illness in this generation coming up, and also to encourage anything else in policy because it's just people don't people just don't want to hear it. Yeah, I mean. I suppose you could think of it a little bit differently, too, that that we think of generational expression of trauma. So, for instance, with the Holocaust, we see many generations after trauma like the Holocaust, many generations of traumatized children who grow into adulthood and raise traumatized children. So, and you could say trauma lives in our cells. It's passed down from generation to generation. And it, it, it changes, but it remains sort of a, um, a destructive influence generationally, right? And, and so if you want to think about the fact that the 60s did have, it's it sort of the version of feminism. I consider myself a, a feminist. I have a t-shirt that says maternal feminism <laughs> from this wonderful organization called Big Ocean Women. And I love this T-shirt. Usually I wear I it make, on podcasts. I'm making a note of it. <laughs> Maternal big feminism. Ocean, big Ocean Women. Okay. Yeah. It's a wonderful <laughs> organization by a woman, a woman named Carolina Allen founded it, which is women all over the world getting together and talking about how valuable mothering is and supporting mm. one another. Yeah. Anyway, the, but the idea is I am a feminist. I, I benefited from feminism. But the brand of feminism, the kind of feminism that um, from the from the sixties, Gloria Steinem's feminism um, is not a healthy form of feminism uh, for our present day. Um, it wasn't healthy then because it it basically um, burnt down the house. You know, they say you should never slash and burn fields. You know, sure, there's some fertility that comes from the earth, but it basically destroys the earth. 
you know, slashing and burning crops. And so that's what it did. It slashed and burned. It said mothering is not important. Children will be just fine. It's sort of what you hear now came from that time. You know, children don't matter. Mothers matter. If you don't go back into the workforce, you're not part of this feminist movement. You're a traitor to it. Um, you know, get out there and get a job. That's what we're hearing today. And that was very destructive. The, the message should have been that not all women need to have children. Not all women want to have children. Maybe someone, some women want to have children and also have a career. So, and there's a way to do it so you can have both, just not all at the same time. The message should have been mothering is the most important thing you'll ever do in your life, but having meaningful work is too. And maybe we can give women the opportunity to do both in their life, just not at the same time. You know, let's give women who have raised children the opportunity to get back into the workforce. Or let's help women who had careers before they had children to, to reintegrate into their careers part-time and then full-time eventually when their children get older. And, you know, menopausal women are a, a force to be reckoned with. I can tell you that because I have, I'm post-menopausal and I can tell you that they are a force to be reckoned with because there's all of this energy that you've used to raise children. And now you're like, what do I do with it? Give me something meaningful to do. And so no one was talking about that. Instead, Gloria Stein, who never had children, by the way, slashed and burned everything in her path and said, children don't matter. And so that's what we live with now. We live with that sentiment. We live with that gestalt that children aren't important. What's important is just women's self-determination and that women have power through money and careers. And those are all important things. But what got lost were the children and the relationship between the mothers and children, which left a lot of women with postpartum depression when they had children because they thought they wanted children, but then they had all these confused messages in their mind. And really, upon having a child broke down, and didn't know what to do with this new role, right? So I would say feminism was obviously more helpful to women than it was destructive, but it had a very destructive side to it. And we live with that today. And one of the painful um, problems we have now is what uh, Elizabeth Warren calls the two income trap, where when it becomes normal for every, as you'll know, when it becomes normal for every family to have two incomes in order to buy housing in a good school district, um, yeah. any family who doesn't have two incomes is at a disadvantage. And so the house prices go up accordingly because people are out, outbidding each other. And so you end up with a situation where when it is normal to have two incomes, it is soon compulsory, essentially, economically to have two incomes. I mean, it's not the only thing that's driving up house prices, but it is one of the factors. And you do see in the UK in particular, um, the point at which it becomes, it's only in the 1990s that it becomes possible to apply for a mortgage with two incomes. Before then, you can only apply for a mortgage with one. And that's at exactly the point where you see this enormous uptick in in house prices. There are other things happening too, but the problem with, yes, the kind of Gloria Steinem view of it, we just give women more choice, is that it ends up actually being, there ends up actually being fewer choices sometimes perversely as a consequence of this kind of change because actually most women, most women are not Gloria Steinem. Most women want to be at home with their young children, um, at least be at home with them more 
than they currently are. That's a very consistent finding in polling. And one perverse consequence of of feminism is that they are now less able to do that than they once were. Well, I mean, let's let's think about it because we're suffering in this country from inflation. I'm guessing you are too, right? So the world, what does inflation mean? Inflation, I'm not an economist, but I've had to read enough of this that I can say that I know uh, enough of it to say that inflation has to do with greed. In- inflation has to do with an excess of material spending that um, leads to a rise in prices and um you know, and so what we have now is is the result of that greed. And so, you know, to get things like housing back down and even the price of eggs, I think the price of eggs in America is something like nine dollars for a dozen eggs, something crazy. I mean, if you make twelve dollars an hour, because a lot of Americans don't even make minimum wage, if you make twelve dollars an hour and after taxes, that's a dozen eggs for an hour of work. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. So. And if we think of it, then we say um, something has to change culturally. There has to be a cultural shift. So which piece shifts first, right? Um, We can only each stay in our lane and take our own piece. And my piece is, you know, this idea that we have lost the value. We've really lost our value system in terms of what's really important. You know, it's when we really lose our way and we don't understand what we value most. Freud said, to be mentally healthy, you need love and meaningful work. He always said love first, because without love, without family, the institution, the structure of it, um, the support of it, as human beings, we fall apart. Um, So meaningful work is important. Money is important. Materialism is important, I suppose. Um, but, But we've gotten the order of things wrong. Um, but but you're right. You're correct in saying uh, two incomes for many families are necessary. I think what Elizabeth Warren doesn't talk about is that um, the word necessary is a complicated word. I think for very poor people, it's she's correct. Um, but she's not really addressing the middle class in our country, at least, who have a standard in their mind of how they have to live and the TVs they have to buy and the trip to Disney World they have to take. And these aren't rich people. Um, And they're not willing to do without that to raise healthy children. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Because it means a loss of status in the here and now for the sake of who knows what in the future. Although I do think that um, a lot of mothers, I include myself in this, have a very... um, painful relationship with you know being present in those early years because you feel this the number of mothers I've heard say that when you go out without your baby particularly when they're little it feels like going out without a limb that it feels like a physical pain of separation and I think that you have to there's such a common phenomenon of um I don't know if you've come across this of women who work very full-time jobs um, and have uh, nannies, so have you know very expensive, high quality childcare. Having a really ambivalent relationship with the nanny. I used to be a nanny, so I can partly yes. talk about it from the other side of this. And often having 
quite um I never experienced this but I know nice who did experience this receiving quite a lot of hostility from mothers and a very kind of competitive energy sometimes from mothers because I suspect what's going on is that the mothers do actually feel um not just guilt but distress at being so physically separated from their children and it's not too difficult it's not good but it's understandable that they would displace that onto the nanny who seems to be sort of filling their place so you know I don't think it's just harm that's been done to children is what I'm saying I think harm is done to mothers as well because I think mothers have to endure a lot of um a lot of misery actually you'll appreciate this story I started a nanny agency with two other therapists and um a recruiter and we decided that we were going to start an agency for sensitive, empathic, nurturing nannies because we knew that mothers were going to go out to work and some had to and some wanted to. But we wanted to put out nannies who were trained in sensitive, empathic nurturing in the neuroscience research and child development and how to talk to children, how to help them to separate from them, you know. And we thought this was a great idea. We designed this whole training and um, we found we didn't pick every nanny, probably one in three nannies we trained. And we put out these wonderfully sensitive nannies. And do you know, we couldn't find women who really could appreciate the nanny. So after four years, we closed the business um, because, and we love the nannies, but we couldn't find mothers who, the mothers were mistreating the nannies. And so, and we just couldn't take it anymore. Like we, we found ourselves more aligned with the nannies than the mothers. Um, and so that's a problem as a business if you can't align with the mothers too. And the problem is, and as I see it as a therapist and in a city like New York, is that women are conflicted. They go to work because they want to, but then they feel guilty and they feel a pull and society tells them silence that guilt. That guilt is not healthy. That guilt is not necessary. Don't worry about your children. Again, Gloria Steinem. There's, I always hear Gloria Steinem's voice in my head when I hear that. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is that guilt is a very useful feeling. It's a signal feeling. It means that you're in conflict. And so when you're in conflict, you do all kinds of destructive things. And in this case, women do what, what I call the revolving door of nannies. Um, because as soon as a nanny gets very attached to a child, as soon as a nanny says, I love you, honey, the mother gets rigid and goes, wait, wait a second. If I'm not going to be there with my child and have my child attached to me, then I don't want anybody else to have my child. And those are the less healthy mothers. The healthier mothers see the nanny loving the baby, see the nanny as not a threat, see the nanny as an alternative attachment figure, like a grandmother, like a hired grandmother, and say, this is wonderful, this is what we want. So, but the less healthy, more conflicted mothers will fire nannies as soon as the babies start to depend on those nannies. So those babies are really screwed because those babies keep experiencing not only loss of mother, but now loss of every attachment figure that comes into their life. And I've seen families where they've gone through five and six nannies before that child is five years old. So, so that child never can form those healthy attachments. Um, you've reminded me of um, uh, a, a, a former nanny um, I used to know, I met when I was doing um, other work with the family um, who said in a previous job she'd had a difficult um 
a difficult nanny employer who had banned her from wearing perfume because the mum said she didn't like coming home to find her children smelling like the nanny. That's right. Yeah, sounds familiar, right? And you can, yeah. you can. It's like an affair. It's like your child. It, it's like an affair. affair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds. It really does. That's what it reminded me of. It she does, told me at yeah. the time. Um, and now, as a mother, I can kind. I do kind of get where the mum is coming from. I think that's a horrible way to behave as an employer. But that feeling of um, it is almost like romantic jealousy. Um, feeling that you're being that you are being um, displaced in your child's affections um and yeah and I think that, and and I, as you say the message is this is you know the, the the mum guilt needs to be suppressed or indeed that the mum guilt is just a kind of artifact of an old-fashioned culture that we need to be rid of not a biological message that you're that your mind is sending to you because there is there is a kind of misalignment between what you're doing and what you want to be doing. Um, so the original title of my book, Being There, was The Lost Instinct. And that was mm, the title I, I really wanted that title, but the publisher mm, said, that's too scientific. And I said, scientific about the word instinct, but it mm, is, that is what is happening. And, and it is, so it is generationally kind of contributed to. And so, you know, the reason that the 90s there was an uptick is because generationally, that is, let's say a generation is 20 years. That's two generations from the, the feminist movement, the old feminist movement. Mm. Uh, I still think there's room for a new feminist movement. And I think that's what you write about. But the, the, the idea that two generations from... Uh, women basically dropping their children, just dropping them. Um, it, it, it has an impact and the impact isn't often seen right away. Sometimes it's not seen for a generation. Um, and so now we see multiple generations, three generations, almost going on four generations where we're seeing, uh, you know, children break down. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. What is your, um, I want to talk about fathers in a moment because you're so interested in fathers as well. But um, before we do, parent, there will be parents listening to this who think, my goodness, I feel dreadful. <laughs> like I, I'm, I am stuck. I'm thinking particularly, you know, places with sky high house prices where you really like subsisting without two incomes is very hard. Parents thinking, you know, it is basically a choice between me dropping out or mother's thinking. It's a choice really between me, me dropping out of the workforce and us having to move to the other side of the country or me remaining in work and using paid childcare of some kind. Is there a, is there some, what, how would you sort of rank the different options in terms of the, the ideal of having mum at home supported by, a, you know, a loving social network with grandparents nearby and so on you know that's probably the best down to 60 hours a week in daycare if if people are having to make practical decisions somewhere in the middle what would you say they should be trying to prioritize well that's if the world were binary if the world were binary i suppose if we see it that way you know you're either supporting your children financially or you're supporting them emotionally and 
that's just not a good choice. You know, like we say with what's happening in the world right now in the Middle East, there just aren't any good choices. Um, but there are some better choices that are in between, which, which we need to talk about, I think, as a society, which is that women in other parts of the world work. Um, I go to India because my husband has a foundation. We go quite often because the main the base of it is in India, but we travel all to Africa and India. So I have the opportunity to see different cultures. And, um, and what I can say is that women have to often have to work in other countries. They don't leave their children behind. And this is what the Industrial Revolution started, which is the idea that to have meaningful work, we must leave our children behind. Uh, and we know from COVID that's not necessarily so, that you can create entrepreneurial work, you can do part-time work. Um, you know, there are ways when you're raising young children to be creative. And I think women have a great capacity to be nonlinear and to be entrepreneurial if given the chance, if given the support. Um, you know, the idea of creating a kind of work that you can do part-time from home. Uh, when I go to India, women have stores. It's sort of like you had said to me, you came to my book launch carrying your baby. I think the Prime Minister of New Zealand brought her baby to Parliament. I mean, we have to get used to children being part of society, not left behind when it comes to work. Um, sure, there are certain kinds of work you can't bring your baby with. You know, I mean, you can't, if you're a surgeon, you're not going to bring your baby into the surgery gallery, right? But um, a lot of work we can, and a lot of work we can do from home, or we can, you know, and if a baby cries in the background, we don't judge it. We don't, we don't create such a rigid binary society around work. You know, we say, look, a woman is a mother and is also working. And therefore, um, you know, you may hear a baby cry in the background or, you know, and, and so I think there's something in between, which is you don't necessarily have to do completely without income. Um, I also think that we have fed women uh, a, a, a lot of uh, false myths about meaningful work. There are kinds of work that you can have more control and more flexibility over, and you can do part-time. And then there's other work that demands that you be in the office, separated from your children, and you do it more than full-time. And I would say we need to really educate women who are already in the workforce, but also young women, that there are many different kinds of work, some of, some of which we used to call women's work, which got um, denigrated and put in a, a pile of, ooh, who would want to do that? But meanwhile, it's wonderful work. It's helping work. It's work that you can do part, nursing, teaching, speech therapy, being a psychotherapist, any service profession at all, uh, making cakes for parties, uh, making, doing invitations. I mean, any service-oriented profession which you can have control over is far better for women than working in a corporate environment because a corporate environment does not give women the control and flexibility they need to prioritize their children. So I'm not sure that binary kind of working or not working has to really be a thing. I mean, again, you go to India and you see in the little stores, you see children around their mother's feet while their mothers are selling rice, you know. Um, you go out into the fields in Africa and you see mothers and babies in the fields together, mothers digging up their, their yams and babies there playing with their mothers. Um, I don't think it has to be so binary as we've made it. 
Um, I wrote my first book while my son was sleeping, basically. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, <laughs> to be honest, because it meant that I had zero downtime. I was going to say, you didn't get to sleep then. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. So I think, I mean, in an ideal world, I suppose we would have other um, parental figures who are permanently in a child's life, like aunts, older Grandma siblings, does. grandparents. Yeah. Um, maternal grandmothers in particular, right, are often um, very important in children's development and, and always have been historically. Um, if you do have to use some paid childcare, what would you say is the least harmful way of doing that in terms of, how, you know, how many hours per week, what kind of childcare, something, so it, we 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 are agreed that the full time daycare model is a bad one. Is there yeah. are there kinds of paid childcare which you'd say are preferable from the child's perspective? So what's interesting is yes, there are um, kinship bonds are best, meaning mm. grandparents, aunts, uncles, um, spouses. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. it's the best because they have a more similar investment in a child emotionally as the mother. You know, but um, but you know the the. The reality is that this deterioration of family bonds is generationally passed down. And at this point, grandmothers don't want to care for their grandchildren, or they can't. So let's say maybe they have to work too, but, um, but a lot of them aren't interested. It's really interesting. So grandmothers would have relished the idea of caring for their grandchildren. But today, grandmothers, there's many grandmothers who... Uh, say, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want that kind of dependency on me. I mean, so we've really deteriorated our essential bonds to one another. Um, and so, yes, I think there's still a lot of healthy grandparents out there and aunts and uncles who, particularly if governments support mothers with some monies, that money could be given to grandparents. I, I advocate for that in uh, in the UK and in America, you know, family stipends where you can give it to a kinship bond, we could give it to an aunt or, or a grandmother or, um, or a babysitter, you know, one single babysitter. Or if you're really poor, you share a, a babysitter with another family. That would still reduce the number of the ratio of adult to child, and it would give more consistency. Um, and, uh, and you'd be able to have a more personal relationship with that, with that babysitter, that nanny, right? So that would be better. So in order of appearance, I suppose the mother is best. Next would be a spouse or kinship bonds, extended family. Then would be a single surrogate caregiver like a nanny. Uh, and then sharing a caregiver if you can't afford it, but definitely no daycare. Even for, even part-time? Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, let's talk about spouses and fathers, because one of the things that I've learned from reading you is how uh, differently maternal and paternal instincts manifest themselves. And it's quite funny to read. I, I, I like read bits out to my husband as well, because you, as a parent, you read it and you see yourself and you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I do. I do do that. Um, and I, you know, like, for instance, I am. Um, I find as a mother that all the, the caring, soothing is so instinctive, so easy. Um, whereas playing, I'm not really that good at playing. I kind of have to like think about playing. Whereas my husband just comes up with the most like inventive games. 
so so readily and and i i and i have learned from uh reading your work and others that that's not a coincidence that there are that there are instinctive differences between us the episode is not over there is another maybe 30 minutes of content but it is behind a paywall if you would like access to that content if you would like to show support for the show pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road allow me to pay my producers put food on the table all that important stuff the extended version of the podcast is available at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much.